Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans. We're going to take a one-week break from our series in 1 Peter. Be finishing that up in the next couple weeks. For today, we're in Romans chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11, so I invite you to follow along in your Bibles, and the text will also be up on the screen for you as well. Please give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Last month, my family and I had the opportunity to go on vacation in Florida, and we stayed in a beachfront, oceanfront condo. We had the, the privilege of being able to do that. And as we went to the beach every morning, we would pass by these couples who were also staying in the same condos, and they were lounging by the pool. And they were there all day long, and we know this because every time we would come back from the beach in the afternoon or for lunchtime or in the evening, there they still were, lounging by the pool all day long, and it happened day after day after day. And as we walked by them every day, I couldn't help thinking, you have the privilege, you have the benefit of staying in a condo that's right on the water, it's right on the beach, and yet you're not taking full advantage. You have the benefit of staying in a beachfront condo, but you're not taking full advantage of it. You're right by the beach, and you haven't even put your toes in the sand. You're right by the ocean, and you haven't even set your foot in the water. At least in my view, anyway, they had the benefit of being beachfront, but they were not enjoying the benefits of the beachfront life. And I think the same can be true of us as Christians. We've been justified, but so often we don't enjoy the benefits of the justified life. We've got a whole ocean of benefits before us in Christ, and yet here we are still lounging by the pool. Paul, up to this point in the book of Romans, has been presenting the gospel, the good news, that we are justified, that we are made right, with God, that we are accepted before God, not on the basis of our good works or anything in us, 
but on the basis of Christ's goodness and Christ's righteousness through faith in him. And then he's going to move on in this chapter, in chapter 5, to show us, look, since you've been justified, you've been made right with God, you've been accepted by God through faith in Christ, you have all these benefits that you can enjoy as a Christian. And so as we work through these benefits in this passage, I want you to ask yourself, am I enjoying the benefits of the justified life? Am I enjoying all that God has for me in Christ? Or am I still lounging by the pool? Let's look at the first benefit of the justified life, peace with God. We see this in verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul does not say peace of God. He says peace with God. Paul talks about the peace of God in other places, meaning the, the calm and the tranquility and the poise that we can have in the midst of difficult circumstances and what we face in our lives. That's the peace of God. But Paul here is actually talking about peace with God. Peace with God. Paul's talking about a removal of the hostilities between us and God. You see, to hear the gospel as good news, we've got to first admit the bad news about ourselves. And Paul has been giving us the bad news earlier in the same letter. Paul's been telling us that we are at war with God. We are at war with God. Chapter 1, verse 18 The wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you may be sitting there listening, thinking, wrath? Anger? Why is God angry with us? How could a loving God be angry and wrathful? Well, hear Paul out. Paul says, the reason God is angry, first, we all know God. We all know God. Because God has shown himself to us in the things that he's made. We all know God because God has shown himself to us in the things that he's made. We look at the ocean and we see the vastness of the ocean. We see all of the the creatures that are teeming within it. We see the the tides and the the rhythm of the tides. And, And we look at that and we say, we know that a God with all power and all wisdom has made it. The stars, I mean, billions upon billions of stars in billions of galaxies. We behold that in the night sky, and we know that there's a God who has made it all and holds it all together. Or think about the the beauty and the humor and the extravagance of the bird songs. I mean, we hear the bird songs, and we know that those are not just territorial claims. We know that they're not just saying, hey, that's mine, that's mine. That's mine. They're too beautiful for that. They're too extravagant for that. They've got too much of a sense of humor for that. We listen to the songs of the birds, and we know deep down that there's a God with a sense of humor, an extravagant God, a God of beauty who has made those birds, and those birds are singing songs of praise to him. They're raising their carols to him. We feel the sunshine and the warmth and the light that it gives, or the rain that falls on the earth and gives life to the earth, and we know that a God of warmth and generosity and life is giving that to us. We know that deep down. We all know God in the things that he's made. Now you may be asking, wait, what do you mean that we all know God in the things that he's made? 
I'm an atheist who doesn't believe in God. I'm an agnostic. I'm not sure whether there's really a God or not. Or I'm a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. I appreciate nature, but I don't think that there's a God of of the Bible behind it. What do you mean we all know God? Paul says we all know God. But the reason for unbelief or uncertainty is not ignorance but rebellion. We all know God. We all know the truth about him, but we smother that knowledge of God under the covers, and we don't let it out. So our problem in our relationship with God is not ignorance, but rebellion. Verse 21, for although they knew God, and Paul's speaking of all of us here, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And you can begin to see why God is angry, why he's wrathful. We've not honored him. We've not acknowledged him. We've not given him thanks. If you create a work of art or if you compose a piece of music or if you finish a big successful project at work or school, how are you going to feel if somebody comes along and takes the credit for it? You're going to be angry, and rightfully so. Is there anything more frustrating than when you give and give and give to somebody and they never say thank you? Parents, we all may teach our children different things, but we all teach our children how to say thank you. Do we not? Think about plagiarism. Why is plagiarism such a big deal? Because when you borrow from someone and you don't let people know where it's coming from, you're not saying thank you. You're refusing to acknowledge the source, and so that robs that person of the credit that they deserve. And Paul says that's what we've all done with God. God has created this work of art. He's composed the music of the spheres. He's crafted this masterpiece of a universe. We refuse to acknowledge him. He's given us life and breath and food and drink and beauty and wonder and family and friends, and we've not said thank you. And since we've refused to acknowledge him, we've refused to say thank you, we're robbing him of the credit he deserves as God, as creator. And so no wonder he's angry. No wonder his wrath is revealed. Not because we're ignorant, but because we know God. But we've not honored him as God or given thanks. We've rebelled against him. We are at war with God, one that we started. But Paul tells us here that God has provided peace. In the language of verses 10 through 11, God has provided reconciliation, a restoration of the relationship between us and himself. And how has he done it? How has God provided peace? How has God reconciled the relationship between us and himself? When you think about re- reconciliation, human relationships, whether it's, it's a husband and wife or a parent and a child or business partners or something like that, you think about compromising, right? You think about each side taking steps to meet in the middle. You think about each side making sacrifices to, to reach a solution, That's not how reconciliation works between us and God. We started the war, but God is the one who makes peace. There's no compromise. There's no meeting in the middle. There's no each side taking steps. God's the one who takes all the steps. God's the one who makes all the sacrifices. He's the one who makes the sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. God gives us Jesus Christ, and on the cross, Jesus takes that anger that we deserve. He takes the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion, and so God's anger is turned away from us. Christ's perfect life, his righteousness is counted as ours when we trust in him, when we believe in him, and we're accepted. We're made right with God. That's what it means to be justified. 
And since we've been justified, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. And so not only does God the judge look at you and declare not guilty, but then God the Father says, come on. And he welcomes you in his loving arms. We have peace with God. And just to make one quick application, if we have peace with God, why is it so often that we don't also have the peace of God? If we have peace with God, if God has restored the relationship between us and himself, if he's provided reconciliation, if he's ended the conflict between us and himself, why are we so restless? Why are we so anxious? Why are we so fearful? John Calvin makes the insight that we so often don't have the peace of God because practically we make our peace with God dependent not on Christ but on ourselves. Not on Christ's righteousness but on our own righteousness. We make our acceptance before God not on the basis of Christ's work but our work. And then Calvin says if you do that, of course you're gonna be restless. Of course you're gonna be anxious. Of course you're gonna be fearful. Why? Because you know you can never be good enough. You know you don't have anything in and of yourself you can offer God. You know you can't measure up to his standards, so you're always gonna be restless. You're gonna be anxious. You're gonna be fearful. He says, when anyone strives to seek tranquility of conscience by works, he labors for it in vain. He's full of trembling and dread until he rests on Christ who alone is our peace and feels itself to be reconciled to God. Let's put it another way. If God has ended the biggest conflict of all between you and himself, don't you think he's gonna help you when you're facing lesser conflicts? Why would you be fearful? Why would you be anxious? Are you enjoying this benefit of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? This brings us to our next benefit, the justified life Peace with God brings access to God. We see that in verse two. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Peace with God, reconciliation with God, a restoration of the relationship brings a continual access to God as well. If you were to meet with a king or a ruler, you have to have all the proper credentials. You have to have all the right arrangements. You have to show up at the right time. You have to have, wear the proper clothes. You can only enter when you're called upon. But what if you're a child of the king or the ruler? What if you're a son or daughter of the king or the ruler? Well, all those credentials are out the window, right? If you're the child of the king, you can just burst into the room with anything you want, anything you need. Say, Daddy, my shoe's untied. And he's gonna welcome you and meet your need. And the same is true with us and God. Since we've been reconciled to God, if the, re if the relationship's been restored, we have that kind of access to God as our Father. We can approach any time, any place, confident that he's gonna care for us and meet our needs in the way that he knows best. Peace with God brings this access to God. Are you enjoying it? Are you taking advantage of it? Do you trust your heavenly Father to provide what's needed? Peace with God, access to God. The next benefit in verse two also. Middle of verse two, we rejoice or boast or exult 
in hope of the glory of God. The next benefit, hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God's not wishful thinking. That's how we typically use hope today, right? I hope that the weather's gonna stay cool for the next couple weeks. That's wishful thinking, probably. It'd be great if it happened. I'd really love for it to happen, but I'm not really sure if it's actually gonna happen or not. I hope that it stays cool this week. Or I hope that Clemson wins the national championship again next year in football. Could be wishful thinking, amen. (laughs) It'd be great if it happened, but you're not sure if it's gonna happen for two years in a row. I hope that we have burgers for lunch today or fried chicken. Be great if it happened, but you're not really sure that's actually going to happen. You might get a salad. Hope's wishful thinking, the way we typically use it. That's not hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is confidently knowing what awaits you. Hope in the glory of God. What's the glory of God? What awaits you if you're in Christ? Nothing less than resurrection. New creation, seeing Jesus face to face, eating with him around the table. Now, sometimes that really can seem like wishful thinking. That can seem like a fairy tale. One day, I'm going I'm to be raised again in a new body. I'm going to live in a new world with no pain and no sorrow and no injustice. I'm going to be free from sin and failures and shortcomings. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm going to eat with him around the table. Is that really going to happen? I mean, that can seem like wishful thinking, can it not? It can seem like a fairy tale. So, so how does this hope grow? How do we move from wishful thinking to confidence, to knowing that this is what awaits us? Well, the answer in this passage, at least, is a surprising one. Let's keep going. The next benefit of the justified life, we grow in hope of the glory of God through suffering. Look at what Paul says in verse three. Not only that, but we rejoice or boast or exult in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. So despite my earlier illustration, we know that the Christian life is not a beachfront vacation. (laughs) It's more like a journey through the desert, is it not? And you feel the heat of pressure and hardship and suffering and distress that comes as a result of living in a fallen and broken and sinful world that's not as God made it to be. And this is one of the main ways, I think, that you can know if you're enjoying the benefits of the justified life and all that you have in Jesus Christ, or if you're practically trusting in your own righteousness and your own goodness, how do you respond when suffering comes? How do you respond when the heat comes? when you're in the desert place. You see, if you're operating on the principle that God accepts me based on my own goodness and in my own righteousness, then you're operating on this principle that God owes you something, that you deserve something from God. So what's gonna happen when suffering comes, when pain comes? Where you're gonna be angry with God. You're gonna be resentful with God. You're gonna be bitter because you feel that God is not giving you what you deserve, what he owes you. He's not giving you the easy life or or easy circumstances that you feel like he should be giving you. But what if you know that what you deserve is anger? What if you know what you really deserve is wrath? is the fire of his wrath and anger for your rebellion against him. 
but that in God's grace, Christ has quenched that anger on the cross. What if you know that? Then when suffering comes, when pressure comes, when the heat comes, yes, there's pain. Yes, there's confusion. Yes, there's uncertainty. Yes, there's distress. Of course there is. But you know, even though you may not understand it, that God's got a purpose in it, that God's got a plan for it, that God is gracious even in it because you've seen what he's done in Christ. And you're able to endure. Look at what suffering produces. Suffering produces endurance. I'm not speaking from personal experience here, but if you're a runner, then you know that the only way that you can develop endurance is if you test it. That's the only way you can develop endurance as an athlete or as a runner, if you actually test it. If all you ever do is run short distances and then when you feel the pain, you stop, you're never going to develop endurance. The only way you can get endurance is by running until you feel the pain, until your muscles are aching and your heart's bursting out of your chest. That's when I stop. But only when you keep going and you endure, that's how you develop the endurance. You only get it when you're actually tested with it. And the same is true of the Christian life. We only have endurance, we only get patience when it's tested by suffering. Suffering produces endurance, and then what does endurance produce? Endurance produces character. And so you know that, that the heat that you're experiencing, the suffering in your life, in Christ, you know that it's not a scorching heat. You know it's not gonna consume you because Christ has already taken that in your place. You know that that heat is not a scorching heat that's going to consume you. You know that that heat is a refining fire that's going to melt away your impurities. And it's going to strengthen your character and develop you as a man or a woman of God. A hymn we sing often here. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross or your impurities to consume and your gold to refine. God is strengthening and developing your character. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then we're back around full circle. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. So how is it that you move from wishful thinking to confidence, knowing what awaits you, it's when God develops your character, when you endure in suffering. That's one way, at least in this passage. How do you know one day you're going to live in a world without sorrow? Because you've had the smallest taste of that world even in your sorrows now. How do you know one day you're going to be raised to life in a resurrection body? Because even though your body might be breaking down right now, you've experienced something of that strength and life within you that keeps you going. And you know what awaits you. How do you know one day that, that you're going to be made completely like Jesus? Well, because little by little, he's making you like Jesus now. So you know he's, he's taking you somewhere. And our hope grows in suffering. But what's the grounds of that hope? How do we know that hope's not going to be disappointed? This brings us to our next benefit, the love of God. We have assurance of God's love. And we see that there's both a subjective and an objective assurance. Look at these verses in verse 5. First, we see the subjective assurance of God's love. Hope does not put us to shame, verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in that heat of suffering, when you're in the desert place, when you're dry, 
God pours out his Holy Spirit. He showers his love and his compassion on you, and it soaks into the to withering roots of your soul and gives you life and refreshment and strength. There's, there's a subjective assurance of God's love, a sense of God's love immediately on your heart, and you know that you belong to him. But I think it's important to see that this subjective assurance, this sense of God's love on your heart, this, this sense that you belong to him, that you're his child, it's tied to an objective assurance of God's love. And we see that in verses six through eight. It's good to have a whisper of God's love for you in the dead of night. You need that. But that whisper has got to have some weight behind it. That whisper has got to have some truth behind it. It's got to have a demonstration of how far God's love would go for you and what he would do for you. And we see that in verses six through eight. We see this objective assurance of God's love. For why we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love. He demonstrates his love in real time, space, history for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How far will the love of God go for us? Well, Paul, he, it's a simple illustration. He says, look, human love at its best may die sacrificially for, for a good person or someone close to you. A parent would die for a child. A husband would die for a wife. A combat buddy is going to die for his fellow soldier. But Paul's saying that fellow soldier is not going to die for the terrorist. That soldier's not going to sacrifice himself for the enemy, for ISIS. That's not going to happen. But God's saying that's what, that's what God's love has done for us. We were yet enemies. And that's when Christ died for us. God showed his love for us. Why we were in rebellion, why we were in war with God. And we need the, both this subjective and objective assurance of God's love in our heart. If you're in the boat, it does little good to have this feeling and sense of security and safety in the boat. If in reality you're sinking. But at the same time, it's not much better if you really are safe in the boat but the whole time you're in fear and trembling and you won't even look over. We need both a subjective and an objective assurance of God's love. Paul's saying it's possible if you're in Christ to be safe in the boat and know you're safe in the boat and be confident in it. To have a sense of God's love on your heart because God has shown his love for you in history. Hope grows in suffering. It's grounded in assurance of God's love. And then it gives confidence in the final day. Confidence at the final day. We see that in verses 9 through 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So if you're saying, yes, I have peace with God. Yes, I'm enjoying access to God. Yes, I'm hoping in God. I've seen that hope grow in suffering. I have an assurance of God's love on my heart because he's demonstrated for me in history. I, I've got that, but how do I know it's gonna last? How do I know it's gonna be there in the end? How do I know I'm gonna be saved in the last day? Death is scary. 
The prospect of a final day of judgment is scary. It can be terrifying. How do I know, even though I have the sense that I'm saved now, how do I know I'm going to be saved in that day? Well, Paul's argument is simple, but it's powerful. He says, look, if God saved you while you were his enemy, don't you think in that day he's going to save you when you're his friend? If God spared you when you were at war with him, don't you think he's going to spare you in that day when you're at peace? If Christ died for you, don't you think Christ lives for you as well? He's already done the hardest part. If Christ is your crucified Savior, let his arms be stretched out on the tree and stayed there for you, don't you think in the last day he's going to stretch out his arms and say, welcome, come into my kingdom? You can have confidence in the day of judgment of God's salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism even says that Christ's return to judge the living and the dead can be a comfort to you. And I hear that and I think, that doesn't go together, does it? Christ's return to judge the living and the dead, how can that be a uncertainty for you, scary prospect for you, no, a comfort for you? The answer, in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. That can be yours in Christ. As we come to the end of this passage in verse 11, we've seen all these benefits of the justified life. Peace with God. We have access to God. We have hope in God that grows in suffering. We have an assurance of God's love. We can stand confidently in the day of judgment. But Paul says, that's just the icing on the cake. The greatest benefit of the justified life. Verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The greatest benefit is God himself. The greatest benefit of the good news is God himself. The greatest gift is the giver himself because we were made for him. That's who we were made to be. And so I just ask you this morning, have you been reconciled to God? Do you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? If not, put your faith in him. And if you have been, I would ask you again, are you enjoying these benefits of the justified life? Are you enjoying it, all that we have in Christ? Or are you still lounging by the pool? There's an ocean that awaits you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, through your word and by your Holy Spirit, impress something of all that we have in Jesus on our hearts this morning. As we close with this hymn of praise, I pray that you would use this song to do that, that we would go out this week and get our toes in the sand, get our feet in the ocean. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.